0: Thanks for finding Organic Matters once again. As I mentioned, almost every week I I get sometimes a few, sometimes a whole bunch. I figured out, of course, it has a lot to do with what particular subjects I'm doing on any given weekend or any given show. So thanks for at least listening long enough to figure out if it's something you want to get involved in or listen to. Now let's begin here with, uh, I'm going to debunk just a little bit the myths that that have been discouraging public funding for clean energy. There's more, here we go again, the world of facts no longer are facts in in, in many particular situations. To spur decarbonization, public investments have got to go beyond government support of research and development and expand into the actual manufacturing and deployment of new technology. In order to do this, governments have got to move beyond the myth surrounding public investment in clean energy. Those those myths discourage use of public funds. A newly published Yale School of the Environment commentary uh, that kind of brought this information forward. If you want to go look it up, it's under the words Nature's Energy at, of course, Yale's page, Yale 360, I think it is. In 2021, worldwide investments in low-carbon energy uh, transition was about $755 billion. And that's—it sounds like a huge number, folks, but it's actually far below what's really required. Climate finance must grow by a factor of almost six, six times what we're spending now by the year 2030 if we want to really limit global warming to that one and a half degrees we've been shooting for. That's one and a half degrees Celsius, folks. However, government support in helping to advance clean energy technology has been hampered by three key myths. They kind of permeate the thought that government should not pick winners by throwing funding behind key innovators. Public financing of a specific technology companies should and could lead to excessive government support. It's a common thing. They call it rent-seeking. I'm not sure what that is. And publicly funded clean energy technology that fails is the tenth amount reason the policy fails. We should have a dual goal with this part of the idea. Debunking the arguments against scaling up, but at the same time uh, as saying how do you manage scaling up the right way? This particular commentary grew out of an effort to bring faculty and students of very different academic disciplines together to examine clean energy policy. And this was back at a time when, by coincidence, the Biden administration's Build Back Better plan proposed more than five hundred billion dollars for climate initiatives. That's been cut way back, folks. That that original legislation got st- just stymied, just completely stopped in Congress. The commentary is actually just a playbook in defense of why you shouldn't actually be susceptible to arguments that spending money on climate is inefficient and wasteful. In fact, in my mind, it's the exactly opposite. We're already going to be too little, too late if we don't go ahead and get rolling on it. But yes, it's going to be a heck of a lot less expensive now than it will be later. There's little doubt about that. To kick start decarbonization. Governments, ours included, must redirect investment towards decarbonization and subsidize clean technologies so they become lower cost, below the dirty alternatives. That's the first goal if we want this thing to be successful. To drive down those costs... Policymakers are going to have to focus on technologies that maximize emission reductions over time and help bridge funding gaps, at least in the early state technology. They cow that little area before it's really working, but you still have to pay for it. The valley of death, strange way. Markets cannot be counted on to optimize those critical policy dimensions. We can't leave it up to the marketplace, folks. Somebody has to control it. And something we've already seen, at least I've been aware of, is the expectation that they want every product and every idea that we put our money in to be successful. It won't always be. I partially remember back a decade or so ago, the government financed a few beginning solar companies, and they failed. And that made, I want to put the sour taste in everybody's mouth, but now look how successful they are. They're making money, they're making the product we need very much less expensively than it was, and it's now a success. But that had we stopped at that first failure, we still wouldn't have the current solar technology that we are using. In other words, my thought is governments should really diversify their portfolios across a number of technologies and even different types of firms, which will result in some major successes along, of course, with some failures. Uh, My teacher once taught me way back, you don't always get the best results from always having a successful venture. Failing sometimes teaches you a lot. If the policymakers believe that they have to show that every company receiving public funds is a success, they're going to be hesitant to pull the plug in cases where success becomes increasingly, let's call it the word, unlikely. Think about that. You've got to know, hey, we've done enough. We're going to move on to something else. And likewise, you've got to realize, hey, when it is a success, we carry on with it. To kind of talk a little bit more about one of the failures I mentioned Obama's administration backed a company called Solyndra, or Solyndra, which went bankrupt. Governments can impose cost and productivity targets on companies with public funding as well as automatic, what we call sunset clauses. We've gone far enough, it didn't work. Solyndra was one of the myriad investments, incidentally, that included Tesla originally and wind farms, both of which are not even questionably any longer six. But had we pulled all funding from that first mistake or two, and there was more than one, believe me, we've never be where we are. We've got to continue putting money where it moves forward. And again, when we don't, and yet yeah, we've got to be able to, I guess, honor that sunset clause and move on to the next project. Got to think about it more this way. Failed companies don't mean failed policies. It is important that we have the right expectations for the resources we are deploying. We don't have a choice, folks. Long term, we will be on green energy whether we like it or not. Now, the uh, perpetual optimists that think we got another 100 years of oil, we just don't. And there's a lot of science behind that. But we also can't switch over in two years. It's going to take 10, 20 years. You've got to start now. And I'm back to my biggest uh, peeve about politicians. They don't care about them. They care about the next election, and the money they can put in their pockets, and how they can impress you for the next time you're gonna vote. But do you say, well, I'm doing something now that's not gonna even necessarily be apparent to the average individual for the next 20 years? Hard project to sell. This kind of fits into the same subject. I'll try to keep it short, but I do want to to always keep people aware of it. Despite ever-growing evidence Of the detrimental effects of air pollution has on our environment and our human health, our government is not doing enough to tackle the problem. The science facts show, listen to the word facts, folks, not fake facts. Air pollution is currently the single biggest environmental risk to health, accounting for an estimated 4.2 million premature deaths globally every year. The WHO, World Health Organization, has published a clear air quality guideline for key pollutants, including particulate matter from now on PM, because you're going to hear more about that, ozone, nitrogen, or nitrogen oxides, and sulfur oxides. Yet across the globe, 99% of the population still lives in places where air pollution exceeds the guideline limits of safety one that we didn't look into till a few years ago I and mean, then we talk about we knew about it was pm what we call particulate matter levels and they are the main indicator for air quality and pose the biggest immediate dangers to personal health of the world while well, particles of about 10 microns in diameter or less can reach the lungs those with a diameter of about 2.5 are really the most dangerous that's, folks, just so you know in English because I can't measure That is 1 20th the width of a human hair. Don't ask me where they come up with that. I can't split a hair in 20 units, but that's what that adds up to. These particles are capable of entering the bloodstream and contribute to the risk of developing cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. Moreover, in the year 2019, a view of studies linking health and air pollution showed that nearly all the body's essential systems are affected, tying pollution to stomach cancers, childhood leukemia, and dementia. Nonetheless, air pollution is not cited as the direct cause of death on the certificates, so people get that they it gets overlooked. It took years of campaigning by the mother of a particular nine-year-old named Ella. Uh, who died of an asthma attack and cardiac arrest for a coroner to accept that her death was due to illegal levels of air pollution in the area that she was being brought up in. That was a global first. It's come a long way since then. And here we go again. I guess I've I'm always preaching for the poor. I like sort of am one, or was. The disparity between rich and poor is also reflected on a global scale, with lower income and developing countries always having the highest death toll due to pollution. China and India alone contribute 62% of the deaths caused by particulate matter 2.5 microns or so from fossil fuel burning And this is a study that started in 2012. In fact, 22 out of the 30 most polluted cities in the world, listen to this, 22 out of 30 are in India alone. Frequent power outages mean the population largely depends on diesel generators. And those living in the slum conditions, the poorer side of, of where you live, rely on burning wood of all things. And they also, for those of you who don't know, they also burn dung. Might probably not be as bad as (laughs) as plastic. But they even use plastic that they find to heat and cook with. They have no idea. These activities release truly deadly fumes into an already thick smog, especially if you're using these fires in your homes, which they do in many cases. Let me stop here and then you can continue this if you want to listen to the show after this particular break. I'll be back with more of the possibilities of what we can do to help eliminate this problem, not just for us, but for the whole world. It is a worldwide phenomenon. Thanks for tuning into Organic Matters. We'll be back after a few minutes here with the rest of the whole idea, which I think is important and people should be aware